Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. First and foremost, I want to wish everyone, uh, I want to wish everyone a happy new year. Uh, the last day of the year, 12-31-23, you know, and I'm hoping and wishing everyone to have a wonderful, healthy, and happy 2024. And ahead of time, thank you guys for all the support that you gave this channel, Police Off the Cuff, and my buddies, Mike Geary, and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. Uh, it's been an eventful year. We've done so many different cases. Uh, and we're going to recap three cases tonight. So hold on to your seats, guys. You're about to enter the off the cuff zone. Police off the cuff. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in Camden Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Well, welcome to Police Off the Cuff, and tonight I have the privilege, and I'm happy to say, two former NYPD compadres to co-host the show with me and to give their informed, educated, I don't want to lay it on too thick, but give their opinions in the, in the show. And first, I'm going to introduce to you retired NYPD sergeant, professor at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut, law degree and all-around good guy. Here's confessions after the show. Professor Mike Geary. Mike, welcome to the show. Billy, thank you for having me on. Good evening, well, I'm everybody. glad you could make it the last day of 2023 to be on the show. And now we have retired NYPD detective straight out of Brooklyn, retired detective Phil Grimaldi. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you, Billy. I just got back from a cannoli run, but I'm here. I made it, and uh, happy New Year to everybody. I, I was going to ask you that, but I didn't want to get the you know the anti-Italian stuff going early on in the show. It's not anti-Italian. I love Italians. I love Italian food, but maybe I overused the cannoli joke. But you know, we were talking off the air, Phil, about how all three of us are so lucky that we're not going to be in Times Square tonight. Oh, that's a blessing, boy. I tell you, I, one of the coldest days I ever spent in my life was down in Times Square. And uh, just uh, uh, like we said earlier when we were, before we were on the air, uh, the best place to watch the ball drop is from the comfort of your home or a nice bar uh, where it's nice and warm and you can uh, have a nice libation. So uh, that's what I recommend for New Year's Eve. So, Mike, you have any, any memories of uh, Times Square? Oh, yeah. I remember being down there in 1999 when the uh, went from 1999 to 2000. Me too. I has never been so cold in all my life. And we were out there at from four o'clock in the morning and there were people already there just waiting. And it was just amazing. People from Virginia, people from all over the place. And it was such a wonderful, carefree atmosphere, even though there was tons of people and everybody was uncomfortable. It was a fabulous feeling to be there. But uh, Bill was right. The comfort of your living room. That's <laughs> 
You know, you're, you're right. To- Let me just say one thing, Mike. You're right about that. I got to admit, the atmosphere. Everybody was in a good mood. Yeah. We didn't have any issues. There was a couple mm-hmm. of roving bands that kind of on the outer perimeter of uh, the area where Times Square was, but the people really understood. Everybody was compliant. A lot of tourists, and uh, it is a great time, but. Uh, it's a little bit uh, cold out there, and I don't know all those hours uh, standing on your feet. Not recommended by me. Yeah, I have to show you guys this. This was my last um, investigative detail in Times Square. I think this was 2008, and I, I got uh, two detectives on the left hand side from the three four squad, and I got uh, one from Homicide, the tall guy standing next to me. That's Mark Worthington, and two from the two three, Patty Porteous. And Zedekiah Jennings, who was from St. Thomas, and God bless him, he got three quarters. He got a disability pension, which means it's just about tax-free. So I, I would jokingly say to him, Z, are you going back to St. Thomas and become the president of the country? And uh, <laughs> he used to, when he first came to the 2-3 squad, his English wasn't that good. And we, when he would ask someone their description, he would say, how he look? <laughs> and I always would burst out in laughter. When he would say, I see Z, it's not how he look. It's how, what does he look like? That's right. what you have to ask. But he would say in St. Thomas fashion, he would say, how he look. The other thing, folks, one, and we'll get off the Times Square thing. I just want to mention one thing. People that go there early, they're put into these pens. And yeah. they're not allowed to leave there. You cannot leave even to go to the bathroom. So what, what do you, anyone not able to go to the bathroom for eight or 10 hours as they're waiting for the ball to drop. So believe it or not, I don't want to be so graphic, but people go to the bathroom right where they're standing. Yeah. You find bottles of urine. They're they're, they're ready for it. But how horrible. And like people, you're like in pens, like you're a cow or a pig or something in a pen and you cannot leave because of security reasons. Well, you could leave, but you just can't come back in. You can can leave, but you're not coming back in. You're coming back seven blocks away. That's what happens. So people do, I tell you, people really do. uh, They put in the work, the effort, and they stay, stand there. Like you said, seven, eight hours and uh, they try and hold it together. But the funny thing about it is the minute the ball drops uh, within like an hour, it's cleared out, you know? Yeah. Oh, they get out of there so fast, it's unbelievable. Anyway, let's get on to tonight's show. Okay. What we're talking about, the three, What? what well, we can't say that the three biggest, but close to the three biggest cases of last year is on your screen. Of course, Rex Schumann arrested and charged with the Gilgo Beach murders, the Gilgo Four that we know right now, that they, they, it was only charged with three of them so far. But they're they're talking about him being charged. And there's the Gilgo Four on the screen. Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartelome, and Amberlynn Costello. And Maureen Brainerd Barnes, that's the case that they're waiting to get enough evidence for to charge the fourth. So Rex Schumann now is in Suffolk County Jail, awaiting his next court appearance. Who knows when this case will go to trial? I'm going to come up with some things that will... I'm sure stir your memory, Phil, and I'm going to do you, uh, go to you first. Sure. This case goes back a lot of years, 12 or 13 years. And, but there was one piece of evidence that when we use the term smoking gun and people don't like the term, this was what's, what solved the case, what got it moving forward. And that was the green Chevy Avalanche. You want to comment on that, Phil? 
Absolutely, Billy. I mean, the vehicle itself is a very unique vehicle. It's not, there's not a whole lot of them out there, specifically the color as well. Now, there's a picture of the vehicle. Now, this turned out to be one of the most uh, interesting pieces of the case and the, the, the piece that kind of put the whole thing together. Uh, when they ran this specific vehicle, uh, they did find that uh, there was one registered in Massapequa to one Rex Human. So, again, th this case was. Uh, is going to go down in history as one of the greatest cases to be solved by technology. Because there wasn't a lot of eyewitness uh, stuff that that evidence that that wound up uh, solving this case. I know we did have the issues in the early part of the case with uh, different uh, bits of corruption with Burke and stuff like that. But when you look at the way that this case fell into place in the last year, uh, it just really came together. It was an old case, and uh, the technology. Uh, with the cell phones, the vehicle, uh, the DNA. These are all the things that put this case together. And I think that uh, we're going to see justice in this case. I'm certain of it. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Let's hope that they do get the charges forward on that last case with uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and they can charge on that case. They'll have four cases that they could charge on. The other cases may be difficult evidentiary-wise. So uh, whether or not they're connected to Rex Human still remains to be seen. But uh, there's hope that possibly they could. So let's, uh, we're pretty confident though that they're going to get the charges on that fourth case. And uh, let's just hope and pray that do we, we do get justice in this case for these victims. You know, Mike, yeah. uh, good, uh, good dissertation there, Phil. Thank you. Um, oh, sir. Mike, did, with the car though, there was a lot of like Keystone Cops type thing in this case. They missed evidence that was so so important and of course the green chevy avalanche first came up in the disappearance of uh karen costello uh and that was excuse me amber costello i'm saying i'm thinking karen vergata amber costello and that was mentioned and that was in the folder that was in the investigative case folder and nothing was done about it for years in fact there, what I found crazy was that there's a Google Maps photo from 2011 that shows the car parked right where the picture I just showed shows the car parked right there. A Google Maps. So they had, if someone would have looked, they would have seen if they could have connected the dots. Because look, this car again was the smoking gun, but there's so much electronic evidence that ties them in. Your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, Billy, this is the biggest, one of the biggest shameful aspects of the case due to uh, the corruption at the top with Burke as the police commissioner at the time and, you know, go and infighting between his office and uh, the FBI. And, you know, it was developed so early on, it was hiding in plain sight. And um, what I read in one report was that after they had the information about the big guy, they didn't know his name, uh, who had threatened Costello uh, and then, um, and you know, contacted her and there was that game played on him. He was really upset. Uh, they got that information. And for some reason, it really wasn't followed up. All I heard was that uh, I read one time there was, in one report was that uh, they classified the vehicle incorrectly while they um, – while they were entering it into a computer database, like a nice spin or something like that. Uh, but it was actually a, a database called Lawman. Lawman. Thank you. Yeah. yeah and that 
they ran it incorrectly, I think, yes. as a car or a truck, and it was right. vice versa. So that's why it didn't come up. And when um, Rodney Harrison came, he mm -hmm. credits a female detective from the state police and running it correctly and finding the vehicle that belonged to Rex Schumann, which was this green Chevy Avalanche. Yeah, it's one of those things, Bill. It just leaves the average person shaking their head and it leaves the average police officer, law enforcement officer, you know, uh, like trying to come up with an excuse for how this was a Keystone cop moment. And there's no excuse for it because once Rodney Harrison got everybody together and uh, they came up with that information within just a few weeks. And that was the saddest part. And we do, all we can do is now say, you know, we got it. We have it. Uh, we got to learn from our mistakes. And that was a huge mistake. And there's no excuses for it at all. Thank God, though, we got the information. It was right there, smack dab in front of us. And it was in the case folder for years and years. Let me just play a little bit of this here. Hopefully this will go. The bodies of four people were found over several days buried near a remote beach on New York's Long Island. All four women were women murdered, wrapped in burlap. They were eventually identified as Melissa. I'm sorry, guys. This is Melissa Bartolome, Megan Waterman, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Amberlynn Costello. So when he talks about the burlap, that was another piece of evidence that became unique to Rex Ullman. Uh I'm going to take this off the screen because obviously I'm, I'm having a, a problem with it loading. Yeah. Uh, of course, when I take it off the screen, it starts to work. So... That was a piece of evidence, too, that they were wrapped in burlap. And some people said that duck hunters used that type of burlap. And it was unique. And, of, of course, it also came back much later on when they identified uh, through mitochondrial DNA three hairs that were, that were on the body. So as many as four, I think three belonging to Asa Ellerup, who was Rex Human's wife. And one belonging actually to Rex Ullman. So this is that is very, very, very powerful information. And I don't know how you can explain that. Or a defense it's well, a defense attorney will try to explain it in some other way, but the evidence is so, so powerful and so so strong. Mike, your thoughts. Yeah, Billy, if they hadn't missed the uh the car, the vehicle, and if they had the evidence at the time processed properly, maybe that connection to, you know. Uh, the, a car being registered in the area where they're expecting possibly the killer to be, the suspect to be, and then have a, a piece of hair. However, also remember the technology may not have been there early on because the DNA technology has advanced so fast. Thank goodness that they did preserve that hair and they were able to test it a second time and realize who it was from. Uh, they can figure out, um, you know, from the genetic component, makeup of it that it was a female who from uh, perhaps from northern european you know uh you know origins and things like that but um thank god dna technology advanced so quickly and that they had kept it and it's a shame that uh, it just took so long to connect all those dots you know i never wanted to believe that it was malfeasance that prevented mm -hmm the Suffolk County police from solving this case. But then when you take a deep dive into this case, it absolutely was. There was a lot of gross incompetence. There was, of course, corruption with Burke.
and uh, the, the DA, who is, I believe, still in prison, Spoda, Spoda. Uh, today. And that really prevented this case from getting solved. Also, the resources, because of the corruption, the resources were never dedicated. They had like one detective working on this case. This is the biggest serial killer case in the nation. And there was one detective, and he wasn't even assigned to it full time. It was like a part-time job. So when you hear about that type of stuff, and then what happened once Rodney Harrison took over, and I'm going to throw this to you in a second, Phil. Rodney Harrison coming from the NYPD, former chief of detectives, former chief of department, a 30-year veteran with the NYPD, even though he's pretty damn young to have 30 years. He must have went on the job when he was 20. He goes out to Suffolk County, and right away he says, this case is solvable. And he throws together an NYPD parlance what's known as a task force. And who are members of that task force? Obviously, Suffolk County detectives, Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, the FBI, who was excluded from this investigation by the corruption by Chief Burke. And then, of course, he they do something that's pretty unique. They include the uh, Department of Corrections, the jail, the investigators from the Suffolk County Jail and the state police. So five entities are, and I didn't mention the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office investigators also. So five entities are part of this task force, now all working together, sharing information, and boom, they hit pay dirt with the identification of the green Chevy Avalanche. Phil. Well, basically, a uh, high-profile case, Rodney Harrison goes out there. There's one detective assigned to the case. You talked about the corruption, Billy, between Burke and Spoda. Uh, they didn't want uh, FBI outside agencies in their backyard for whatever reasons of uh, whatever they were doing. So that's that. Uh, Harrison gets out there. We know from high-profile cases, he took as many resources as he can. He put together. He felt that this case could be solved. He was right. He went to the crime scene the first day that he was sworn in. He saw what it was like. He got a feel for it. You know, we always talk about that. You have to walk the crime scene, get the feel. Sometimes pitches don't do it justice. Uh, maps, all those different things. You got to go there. You got to get the feel. So that's what he does. He puts together this task force. Now, I want to talk quickly about the burlap because the burlap was really, really important. The reason I bring that up is this. The burlap is tied to duck hunters, yes. But burlap has a, a certain uh, fiber to it that these hairs were able to remain inside the burlap for an extended period of time. You had weather. You had animal interaction. All these different things. These bodies weren't recovered the next day where you would expect things like hair and fibers to be intact. These bodies were there for an extended period of time. So perhaps the, the hairs got caught in that burlap, and that was very, very important. Probably one of the... Biggest mistakes that Rex Newman made was putting these bodies in that. Perhaps if it was a plastic bag or something of a smooth surface, those hairs might not have been there. So, again, that was very, very important. But, Billy, I'm glad you brought up the point about Rodney Harrison. We have a, an, a love and affection for him because he comes from the NYPD. We know how professional he is. He worked in my borough in Brooklyn when he was a detective. I heard so many great things about him. I had some conversation with him. And that was the linchpin that put the whole thing together. Again, we know that that female investigator from the state police was the one that was able to re-put that into the lawman search and come up with the uh, information on the avalanche. But all of these agencies working together, I think that was really what really put this case together. And again, this case is going to go down in history. It was solved on all the different technology. It's 
very, 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 I think it's a, a great case. If you're into true crime and if you're into uh, law enforcement like we are, this is one of the cases that you'll look at and use it as, as an example to how to solve a, a, a you know, a mystery, basically. Absolutely. I want to pull this up. This is the um, probably the most important document. It's the a bail application form. And I just want to read from a little bit from this. In January 2022, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office assigned an experienced team of investigators, analysts, and prosecutors to work jointly with law enforcement partners from the Suffolk County Police, the New York State Police, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. A comprehensive review of every item of evidence and information in this investigation was undertaken by the team. On March 14, 2022, approximately two months into the renewed joint investigation, this comprehensive review led to the discovery of a first-generation Chevrolet avalanche that was registered to defendant Rex Ewerman at the time of these murders. As described below, this was significant because a witness to the disappearance of Amber Costello identified a first-generation Chevrolet avalanche as the vehicle believed to have been driven by her killer. This discovery led to a comprehensive investigation of defendant Ewerman, which consisted of over 300 subpoenas, search warrants, and other legal process to obtain evidence. As discussed below, among the items uncovered were cell phone billing records for defendant Ewerman, corresponding to cell site locations for the burner cell phones used to arrange meetings with three of the four victims. The taunting calls made to a relative of Miss Bartolome, a call made by a detective to Miss Bartolome's cell phone while looking into her disappearance, and calls checking on Miss Brainerd Bond's cell phone after her disappearance. In addition, Ewerman lived in Massapequa Park, where the victims were believed to have disappeared from, and he worked in Midtown Manhattan in the vicinity where the taunting calls were made to the sister of Miss Bartolome. So this is the document that is incredible because it sort of lays out the case of how they got this information. And it's really so concerned. It's 32 pages long. Anyone can have access. If you want to search everybody it, guys, that's interested in this case, you definitely pull that up. It's unbelievable. It's the bail application form for Rex Human. Just Google that. It'll come up. Mike, your thoughts. Yeah, Billy, the great thing about the, uh, the form is that it just lays it all out there and you can see the timeline. And that was so important with, Rodney Harrison, he comes in and within a couple of weeks, he's got this team together. And within just maybe one or two months, they come up with a name. And, you know, then they just focused for like a year watching and just closing the, the trap slowly with Rex Sherman. Um, it gives the it gives the person who's not in law enforcement, you know, a really good chronological idea of how this all transpired. And uh, that's important because, you know, once you have good leadership at the top that knows what it's doing, that is confident, uh, then you can do a lot amongst many agencies in a task force. What you had before was the Keystone Cops. Nobody was allowed in the back room to see what they had. Like you say, one detective not even working on it full time. And there's a serial killer. And it was just it had gone to crap. The investigation had gone to crap. But uh, the bail application can give people who are not familiar uh, a lot of confidence in the fact that good leadership produced good results very quickly. Phil, Phil, would you, I make, I, hold, Phil I want you to explain yeah. something. Go I ahead. want you to just explain to our audience the concept of burner phones. 
Basically, burner ferns are, you, you can buy it for cash. Uh, you can give any name. To, they, they ask for a name, but uh, they don't really check IDs. And this burner phone will have uh, a record of calls that are made from it. So if you use it and you toss it, uh, there's no connection to you. However, it will leave a trail of what calls were made from that phone. So a lot of uh, criminal activity takes place with burner phones. Uh, they buy them, they turn them on, they turn them off, they use them for different things. A lot of times uh, narcotics traffickers will use them. And like I said, uh, you can, you know, you can buy them and dispose of them. They're basically disposable. Uh, what the bad guys don't really know is, like I said, there was uh information if you get caught with that burner phone it will have a track of the calls that you made in and out text messages and if you take photos with it they will be uh, uh able to access that kind of stuff so uh, you know that's uh the way burner phones work but i want to make a quick comment about the affidavit if you don't mind billy Go ahead. Uh, anybody that pulls it up look at page 18 and 19 page 18 and 19 and that affidavit it shows the searches that this psychopathic animal made. And when you read those searches, we can't even read them on the air. They're so graphic. Look at those things. And then I'll give you a profile of what uh, Rex Human's mindset was. That was from his computer, the searches that he did. Really, really uh, off the wall stuff. I'm going to put it on the screen, Phil. So we'll there see. There you go. That's, this is what he was searching on his computer. Uh, if you could see that. Uh, I won't read it out loud because I don't want YouTube to uh, shut us down, but you could see it. You could see what he read. And this is on page 18. And the, yeah. the amazing thing about the technology is that the Suffolk County Police Department, they were able to remotely search his computer, which is, to me, I know maybe I'm old fashioned. Maybe I haven't been around during this technology boom in the last 10 years, 12 years, probably. In the last, they say in the last 10 or 12 years, there's been more advancement in, in science than in the last 100. So that includes law enforcement. So they were able to search Rex Ewerman's computer and without him even knowing it. Pretty damn, pretty damn cool, if you ask me. And that's how they were able to obtain this stuff. And they could see from his searches that he was pretty damn interested in the Gilgo Beach investigation. He was interested in what were the what the police were doing. Who were they searching for? How are they on to me? What do they know? What do they what don't they know? Mike, Bill, I'm going to use the term I always love to use: <laughs> consciousness of guilt. You know, <laughs> you know, probably people will, if they're out on Long Island and they read a story that they're going to be there's a new task force forming, you know, publicly and publicly announced that sort of thing. Somebody might Google it once here, once there, but one uh, you have your one of your primary suspects uh, and then you go back and you see what they've Googled. So, you know, you develop a suspect, Rex Sherman, who was developed within um, just like maybe a month or two months of the formation of the task force. So you start to slowly close in on that. You're what you're hoping the, 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 uh, the cell phone information uh, gives you a lot, you know, gives you the uh, boxes from where the messages, you know, the, the phone traveled, you know, that sort of thing. And then you're getting, uh, you know, all those, all, all that information, uh, the DNA evidence, whatever you have. And then you start to really, since you're focusing in on one person, really get to know this person. And they were able to do it remotely, which I had no idea either was possible. And they, so they were able to do it without alerting him to the fact that they were on him. And lo and behold, what do you see? What he was 
he probably a dozen times did Google searches of updates, updates, updates on the Gilgo Beach murder. And now he's not a journalist who's reporting this in some sort of magazine or some sort of newspaper. And so that's a lot. And then you also see what he's also searching for in his spare time. And you start to put all of this stuff together and it shows that this person is more than likely the guy because you know, he's interested in all of this uh, sick and demeaning stuff. And all the people who he's suspected of killing are prostitutes and they're tied up and it was terrible. So you really begin to understand who exactly you're dealing with from a criminological point of view. You, you know, you do that perpology and it's yeah. really convincing That's one of my you favorite that, words. Right? Canonism, right? And you really realize that, wow, once you start getting all this information and the DNA evidence and the cell phone evidence, and it's all just, it's all interlocked and it's all reinforcing each piece of that puzzle. And you know, you got the right guy. And Mike, I want to mention, this is page 19. And these 18 and 19 are, are where all the searches are. Why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? Long Island serial killer phone call, Long Island serial killer update, Long Island serial killer. He's, he's interested in the case because he's the guy, you know? Yeah. yeah. You, you know what, Billy? I got to use a copism. We were talking about copisms before we went on the air. Because of the searches he was doing and because of the surveillance they were conducting on Rex Human, the takedown, the takedown had to be speeded up. They took him down because they were in fear that perhaps he may uh, commit harm on another uh, call girl or another um a sex worker. So uh, again, that takedown was sped up. They arrested him. Thank God he's in custody. They're continuing on with the investigation. And uh, when you look at those, uh, those searches and, and uh, there's really some sick stuff in there, when you look at it, you showed the blacked out version, but when you pull it up, it's not blacked out. There's some really sick stuff in there. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I want to just, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't cover this. And I just want to put this on the screen for a second. Uh, this is Ray, um, John Ray, the attorney, John Davids regarding this case, regarding Rex Uerman and Shannon Gilbert and Karen Vergata. Before I talk about them, first, I want you to be aware that here stands the commissioner, as you know, with me and So basically, this was a press conference where he was talking about new information that he had received from a witness. And the, the, the case seemed a little bit um, far-fetched. And the, the press conference, he sort of talked about how, I think it was 1997. Uh, yes. And that a male detective, an active detective from the NYPD was a narcotics detective and a female who is his witness now were, went to uh, Rex Uerman's house in Massapequa Park because they saw a sign in a sex club in Manhattan called the La, La Trapeze and allegedly told by the witness that he put a, th a flyer on the, on the wall in this club interested swingers and this location. So this female who was his witness is, is affiant who signed this affidavit swearing that what she had told was true, um, says they went there, her and this male detective, and with a female 
who she identified as Karen Vergara. Now, many people, the, the task force uh, and Ray Tierney were not happy with this press conference, and they were not happy with uh, Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison. But we, we on other shows, we gave the reasons we felt that Rodney Harrison did this because John Ray has been involved in this case uh, with the Shannon, Shannon Gilbert's family since 12, 13 years. And he's, you know, he's a flamboyant guy and people don't like when we criticize him, but the information he gave, I thought was a little bit off the wall and um, needed to be vetted. And I don't know if to this point it has been vetted. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, a lot of people thought that what he was saying was, um, you know, evidence. But what he was talking about was people, as you say, affiants swearing that they believe what they said to him and wrote down on a piece of paper and they signed it to the best of their knowledge is true and accurate. It may not be and they may have you know, all good intentions, but the information may not be accurate in terms of date, time, location person they saw because it goes back 20 years 15 you know 18 20 years so it's not evidence and i know a lot of people thought oh my god he's got all this evidence and nobody's listening to him no he's got you know at you know, statements sworn statements but you know you and phil would have to go out in your investigative capacities and you'd have to interview everybody and see if there's anything that you can determine to be actually factually accurate looking at milestones dates was it somewhere near um you know, like uh valentine's day was it a uh, 1999 and people remember that it was 1999 because uh, the ball dropping in times square you know things like that without it you have a lot of well-intentioned people trying to help as best they could and i don't think john ray i'm not going to question his motives i think he's a he's he's a real dedicated guy but um it's He's dedicated to his pocket. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, you know, <laughs> but it's Mike, not you know, Mike, let me just stop you for you one know. second. There was one thing that they could have tracked there. And they, I think that the year they said was 1996. Right. And they said that they had picked Karen Vergata up in the city. Mm -hmm. And after she was arrested. After she had been arrested. Yeah, she said she just got out. So that was checkable. They sure. could have checked that. So. Whatever this witness gave, I hope that she was interviewed by Suffolk County detectives after she did this affidavit for uh, attorney John Ray. But some of the a lot of the news stations and a lot of the podcasts reported this as gospel truth. Yeah. And it was I saw, thought it was ridiculous that they were reporting it like that. I thought it was self-serving. And, it, it, you know, yeah, you could do that because you want to get a million clicks, but it's not. It's not vetable. It wasn't traceable. There was just a witness from X Mount years ago that didn't have times. Look, the most important thing in, in, in to verify someone's credibility is when, where, who, what, how, and why. And if you can't answer that, it impinges on that person's credibility. Phil. Yeah, Billy, uh, listen, bottom line, uh, Johnny Ray was not going to keep quiet. He was heavily involved in this case. He was invested in this case. And I think that Rodney Harrison got out in front of it. He was going to come out with these affiants, affidavits, saying all these different things. Uh, we don't doubt that these things, these uh, actual stories may have taken place. However, are they connected to 
Rex Human in this case. That's really the part that needs to be corroborated. I think that's what Mike was getting at. Yeah. We have to go out. We have to do some uh, follow-up and find out if these people are telling us a story that involves Rex Human in this case, or is it an incident that happened that had nothing to do with this case? So we needed to corroborate it. I believe that's why Rodney Harrison got up there with him at that press conference. He's going to do the press conference. He's not going to keep quiet. He's been heavily invested in this case, and he wanted to show that, hey, there was corruption uh, 10 years ago or whatever it was with Burke and Spoda. I'm not going to be that way. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. And if it's involved in the case, it could be helpful. Let's go with it. If it's not, we'll then just we'll put it on the side and we'll we'll eliminate it from being involved in this investigation. So some of it may be true and related to the case. Some of it might not, or it may all be uh, unrelated to this case. So that's really the thing. That's the job of the detectives at that point. Once that information comes forward, let's try and corroborate it, look into it, vet it. See, Billy, you brought up the point. The first thing you would check to see if Karen Vergata had taken a collar at that time in 1996. What was the date that she was released from jail? And you go from there. Exactly. And the other smoking gun piece of information, and many also reported this as gospel truth, was that Asa Ellerup was involved in swinging with her husband Rex in their home where their two children were there. Uh, I thought it was a little bit far-fetched. And lo and behold, and we're going to move on from this case after this, Lo and behold, next thing we hear is she's taking a seven-figure payout to do a documentary on this case. So did that hurt her credibility a little bit? Did that hurt her lawyer's credibility, uh, Mr. Mastrantonio and Mr. Vitev, I think his name is, who was the attorney for the kids? Yes. So she was implicated, according to John Ray, that she was involved with these sex workers with her husband. So can we vet that? Or is, is there any truth to that whatsoever? I don't know. Billy, we could talk about when Bobby Chacon was on the show. He gave us a profile of serial killers. And we know from working with them ourselves that they usually kind of work alone. They're not working with other people uh, committing these heinous crimes. And when you look at the profile of a serial killer and we look at all the different things that he did, his wife was out of town when we believed that some of these people disappeared. It doesn't appear that this would be, uh, you know, part of his serial killing, having his wife involved in it. Now, could they have had uh, a, a sexual component to their relationship where they did involve with swinging? Yeah, I guess that's possible. I, it doesn't seem likely to me. That did seem far-fetched to me as well, Billy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was, again, it was reported by the media as brand new suspects, brand new, as, is, 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 breaking news, breaking news. Yeah, exactly, breaking news, and it's not been vetted. So I don't see how people go to the right to the top of the ladder and say it's proven. It's not proven. This was an allegation by a witness who we don't even know the person's name. And again, Mike, you can explain what an affidavit is. We have many times she produced an affidavit, which just means this information I'm about to give you. I believe it's true, but. It can't be, you know, we can't give it the test of who, what, where, how, and why, you know? Right. It's a story until it becomes corroborated, verified by detectives. And then, and only then, could, if it's relevant to the case at hand, would it be used as uh, evidence against uh, Herman? Um, I think the problem with a that a lot of people have with Asa Elsrup is the fact that more hair of her hairs have been recovered 
at the crime scene than Rex Hurman's hairs. And therefore, um, a lot of people think they may have had some sort of sick, twisted relationship where it may be possible that she engaged in some sort of violent actions against the girls. And it also may, it, but it may be answerable to the fact that uh, no, but if the killings did occur in the home, that likely there would be maybe some of her hair lying on the carpet or something like that. But it troubles a lot of people. And I'm not sure if we're ever going to get, you know, a straight answer or a clear answer as to what her involvement at all would be. And I, I would imagine that the task force still may be looking at that angle as to say, is it possible she may have had some sort of tangential, um, you know, part of the uh, killings of these girls and the disposal of their bodies? We may never know, but uh, it is a wild card at this point. You know, I, that's a good point. And I, I mean, I could explain uh, that the way the hair got there was just through transfer evidence. You know, she lives in the house, the burlaps in the house, her hair could have got on it that way. It doesn't right. necessarily mean she was involved at all. Thank God but, it did, though. Thank God it did. Yeah, Thank but we, did. we have to also look at the fact, you know, you can't, because this case will almost undoubtedly go to trial um you can't just dismiss witnesses that an attorney comes in but they should be interviewed right away by detectives so their information can be determined to be true false or we can't determine if this is true or false because the person isn't clear uh, their memory isn't that clear it's one of the you know i think one of the things well from 1996 that's a that's a long time ago you know but Billy, you're making a great point because the detectives doing the interview, you know, I, I as an investigator, you'll get the feel. Now, I, I know in my my past, I talked to certain witnesses and, and some of you say, well, you know what? This woman's strong. I know she's got the information. She knows this. She knows that. And you get you develop a sense and a feel that, yeah, this is good information. You know what I mean? So that's what we're talking about, vetting it. So if the detectives get in there and they drill down, you know, they can say, listen, we believe that this happened to you, but we don't think it's involved. And they may, may give reasons why. Or they may say, yeah, this, you know, she's right on the track with what she's saying. It's, it, it all makes sense. It fits in. It, it all becomes part of the puzzle. So uh, that's really the important part. I just hope and pray that that was done uh, with uh, Johnny Ray's uh, bringing these, these people forward with these affidavits. I'm sure that they were had to be talked to at some point. If they remain anonymous and they just put this out there and that they don't want to come forward, then how could we ever find out whether or not it's relevant to this case? I think the uh, Johnny Ray did, or John Ray did give this information to the police. I, I don't want to call a 70-something-year-old man Johnny. You know, he might not like that. So I'll call him, his name is John Ray. We're going to move on from this case. But the first, I just want to say one last thing with this. Where does this case go in 2024? What What's the next step, Mike? Is it going to go to trial in 2024 or are they going to put it off? What do you think? Billy, I think he's going, you know, he doesn't, since there's no death penalty in New York um, and uh, he's looking at life behind bars without possibility parole. That's that's what he's that's what he's looking at, um, whether they connect him to four, hopefully as many as we possibly can get and get closure on or not. You know, I think he I'm hoping he probably just short circuits the system and says, you know, I'd like to plead guilty. But the thing is, 
Not happening. You know, there's no leverage on him to do that. There's no right. you know, waving of the death penalty above his head to say, look, you plead guilty, we'll take death off the table. Uh, but that's that's one of the useful things to have in, in a case like this. So he might just sit in Suffolk County and go to trial next fall, perhaps, you know, 2024, you know, 11 months from now, 10 months from now. Bill, quick, well, I, I feel like that the only leverage they possibly could have is after trial, say he gets convicted of four murders. And they say, look, would you like to have uh, more privileges while you're in state prison? Right, would you maybe. like to have a nicer cell? Would you like to have this? We want you to come clean about everything and uh, potentially other murders that you may have committed. That's the only way in my mind that he would cooperate whatsoever. Serial killers look forward to the trial part of it when they're arrested, Billy, because they're going to relive it. They're going to show crime scene photos. They're going to show different aspects of the case. Going to hear people talk about it. And then don't forget, he taunted the victims' families. Perhaps victims' families are going to testify at this trial to give uh, a, a life to the name and, and talk about the person, talk about the victims. Unfortunately, he's going to enjoy that. That's what serial killers live for. So I don't see him taking a plea in this case. Perhaps after he's convicted, like you said just now, Bill, uh, we can give you some type of, uh, you know, keep you in a prison close to your family or something of that nature, and then maybe come forward with some information. But believe me, uh, what we know about serial killers, he's going to enjoy every minute of this trial. He probably didn't want to get caught, but once they get caught, they get to relive the whole devious act that they committed by all the different uh, pieces of evidence that will be put forward, crime scene photos, family talking about it. And we know that he taunted. So again, that's an, another thing that this son of a gun did. He taunted them and he's going to relive this and he's going to enjoy it. Unfortunately. Absolutely. All right. The, the next big case, of course, uh, from 2023, and it actually occurred in 2022, November 13th, 2022, was the murder of the four University of Idaho students that we, you know, we always remember them by name. Uh, Zana Canodal, Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, and Ethan Chapin. And a heinous, heinous crime, you know. And everyone has been following that case. And recently, it was back in the news with the um, knocking down of the house, which we did an entire episode on because we were against it. We were against them knocking that house down. Mike and I spoke about it, the reasons that we felt that they should have kept the house intact. And I know, Phil, you were chopping at the bit because you didn't get to do that show. Yep. So if you want to just uh, a few sentences on why you thought that was a bad move also. Well, listen, I could just hear a defense attorney. You know, in opening statements, the district attorney is going to lay out different uh, aspects of what they're going to present during the trial. We're going to talk about that uh, the vehicle was in the area beforehand and all the different things. And I can just hear a defense attorney saying, well, the uh, the prosecution wants you to believe that my client just waltzed into this house and walked upstairs and uh, slain four people and walked out and walked past another individual. The thing that might be missing in this case is the jury's ability to go there. If they say with a diagram or they measurements 25 feet or 12 steps into the house, you're not going to understand it. You may understand it a little bit, but if you were at the crime scene and you can see the direction that he took, how easily it was to walk right up the stairs, and you might get a better idea and understanding. 
I don't think this is going to impact this case because there's a lot of evidence in this case. Uh, my heart dropped when I watched the show the other night, last a uh, couple of nights ago, Bill, and I saw when the house went down. It gave me a feeling of, you know, this horrible thing took place there, and I was kind of glad to see it go down. But with regard to crime scenes, and Bill, you know, we never release a crime scene unless it's absolutely necessary. If there's, uh, in, in a case where other people are living in the apartment, we'll do extensive photographs, and uh, they have that 3D uh, uh, imaging now. But if there's other people living in the house, at some point you have to give the crime scene back to those family members. But again, it's not knocked down. So maybe uh, if the jury wanted to go there in the future, to, you know, they would allow people access into it. It doesn't happen a lot where juries go to the location. It does happen, but it doesn't happen a lot. So I don't think it's going to impact the case, but we always try to err on the side of caution. In any case I've ever been involved in, we always try to retain the evidence, hold the evidence. You don't release things like a vehicle or a crime scene unless you really have to. Uh, you know, unfortunately, in this case, they uh, both sides agreed to do it, to demolish the house. I think it's going to bring some type of closure for the area, for the community. But again, we voted not to do that. And unfortunately, they did. Let's hope and pray that it doesn't uh, you know, affect the outcome of this case. Absolutely. Folks, I just want to go to a quick commercial. Folks. If you're looking for a real crime or a true crime podcast from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. And if you want to uh, contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And we appreciate all our fans, our friends, our subscribers who have made this podcast what it is and have continue to uh, make it grow and hopefully in 24 2024 it'll grow even bigger mike i want to talk now about the evidence and I'll, I'll try to be as chronological as possible the biggest piece of evidence in the beginning i think that led to coburger and if you recall was the white hyundai elantra mm -hmm. and that i mean that was what we first as the as the public that was one of the first things we knew about before we found out about the knife sheath. Why don't you speak upon that white Hyundai Elantra? Yeah, Billy, early on, they were asking everybody. There was a plea going out from the police department. Everyone, please, anybody, if you saw, no matter what you may have saw that you didn't think was really important, please talk to us. And then in that context, they then made the statement, uh, there was a, 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 a person or persons because they weren't sure at the time in, in a, in a uh, white Hyundai, and they were like, could they please come forward too? And I remember thinking about it going, that's kind of interesting. I wonder why they would do that. Maybe they're just being super, super thorough. And you called it, and you and Phil called it like, you know what, that Honda, uh, that Hyundai, that's the person they're looking for. That's suspect number one. They want that person. And uh, that was huge because what they did was, they saw that, you know, pictures of it on doorbell, ring doorbell cameras, driving around the area, shots from like a gas station of it driving by quickly. And it it put, it was unique because it only had one license plate. So they knew it wasn't like a local uh, where you have to have two license plates. And they didn't know it was from Pennsylvania at the time. But when they, they did a database check and they did a database check very, very well, very thorough. And the University of Washington uh, security was asked to take a look at all of the cars of all of their students 
And what do they see? Lo and behold, that there is a white Hyundai uh, uh, registered to a guy from Pennsylvania named Koberger, who's a graduate student in criminology. That was huge. And you and Phil called it right away. You knew what they were looking for, even though they asked for that, you know, the public's help uh, very discreetly. You guys knew exactly what it was. Well, you know, early on in this investigation, everyone was concerned that the Moscow police would not be up to an investigation of this level, of this size, of this uh, manner of expertise. However, to their credit, they reached out immediately to the FBI and to the state police and requested help. And that was one of the biggest decisions uh, on this case that helped to solve this case was that they got help early on and they didn't try to become territorial. They didn't try to say, this is our case. They formed, in essence, almost like a task force, like they did with the Gilgo Beach case. They did it right. Absolutely. And Bill, you know, when you think back, uh, they were calling this a cold case a couple of weeks in. Now, we had a, a, a horrible situation, a quadruple homicide, four young, innocent kids slaughtered. And I guess there was just uh, so much attention to the case. So many people wanted this to be solved. But unfortunately, these things take time. And uh, thank God that they brought in the FBI and the other agencies, the state police. They all worked together and they were able to uh, put together the case against Kohlberger. When you look at the affidavit, I believe it was the... Uh, probable cause affidavit. There's a ton of evidence in there. And there's a lot of things that we don't know that will come out at trial. So I don't think um, it's going to be an acquittal in this case, but you you never know. So let's just hope and pray that everything goes forward and we do get the conviction and we do get justice for these families. You know, Phil, the, the word cold case, I heard so many media stations, so many journalists use that. It was six weeks. took six weeks to arrest him. And think about how difficult of a case it was. It wasn't an easy case. And they're talking cold case. Like they really need to shut up when they, when they say ignorant things like that. I mean, look, they're not going to shut up. They're going to say what they want because they're journalists and they want to report things like that. But six weeks is not a long time to solve a murder, a complex murder like this of four young innocent students. Absolutely. However, you know, because of the, the notoriety and the pressure on them, they were. They wanted the rest made yesterday, and as you as you know, things take time. So, this is another case, and we're pointing almost every single case these days involves digital evidence, and this case was no stranger to that. We mentioned the white Hyundai, and the white Hyundai, as Mike said earlier, was caught on ring cameras. It was caught on cameras and video from a gas station. Then. Now we have to prove that that white Hyundai is the white Hyundai we're looking for, the, the perpetrator's cell phone. And what they found out is that Koberger turned his phone off when he was traveling toward the house. And then as he left, he turned it back on. And so all of that information. Much of guilt. Yeah. And then he came back to the house at nine o'clock in the morning, right. which is something that killers do sometimes. And that type of evidence with his white Hyundai and his cell phone on now, and he's back at 1122 King Road. Mike. Yeah, Billy, um, as, as Phil said, it's consciousness of guilt. Um, we see this with arsonists and, and other people who have killed, you know, or have done th- these sorts of things. They want to enjoy 
the emergency vehicles, the firefighters, the paramedics, the first responders. They want to see the 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 the, the emergency you know, vividly that they caused. And so he was probably shocked when he drove by the home around nine o'clock in the morning and saw like nothing disturbed, nobody around. Yeah, just just amazing. But uh, you know, those are the things that you and and Phil and criminologists look to. It's that purpology. How do they act? You know, before and after. And um, he fits that that profile, that loner profile of a person. You know, we don't know when he started to focus in on on these on these two on uh, Ms. Kernodal and Ms. Gonsalves, you know, that sort of thing early on. We're not sure. It's a very short timeline. We'll know because there's been such a, uh, a blackout on on leaks and information. But uh, hopefully that will all come out and um, people will then be able to actually figure out what what could actually po possibly have possessed him him if it is true what he's alleged to have done how could he possibly have done that to people because it doesn't seem to make sense it seems like a senseless crime and that's what i think uh has held up a lot of people saying you know it's probably it could be somebody else other than him because they don't people want to understand they want to figure out a, a real solid they want motive they want motive, motive. because exactly. in, in his twisted mind we don't know what the motive is his motive mm -hmm. Could have been rejection in the past or whatever it was. And and you're right. A lot of times uh, juries or just ju the general public will look for motive. What what was the reason? And we don't seem to have one here. But I think, uh, uh, you know, real quick, you talked about that he returned to the scene. Maybe he did searches, uh, you know, watch the news and he didn't hear anything. Maybe that's why he went back to the scene. Right. They'll have that information from his computer or his cell phone. That's a good point that you brought up, Mike. Yeah, thank you. You know, another thing I want to talk about, we're talking about the evidence. And one of, obviously, the most important piece of evidence in this case is the touch DNA on the knife sheath. Now, defense attorneys love touch DNA because they think they can defeat it. They can explain how it got there, except explain how it got there. And also his cell phone was there, too. Uh, in front of 1122 King Road. And the same type of car there. was there. And his car was there, right. Yeah. Uh, explain, you know, him cleaning up the car at, you know, four o'clock in the morning in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of circumstantial evidence. I will agree it's circumstantial. But as we say all the time on this show, lots of circumstantial evidence when piled up high becomes very powerful. Mike. Yeah, Billy, people think that, oh, you know, direct <coughs> evidence is the only really strong evidence. No, circumstantial evidence, all it requires, and that's what most trials are of, because direct evidence is if you have actual videotape of somebody actually doing a criminal act or somebody actually implicates themselves uh, in a statement or confesses or there's a witness actually seeing it. Other than that, DNA, uh, cell phone evidence, motor vehicle evidence, all these other things that um, are all circumstantial and all circumstantial evidence is, is asking the jury to make a logical connection. That's all. And so circumstantial evidence is absolutely as powerful as any other type of evidence. So I hope listeners don't think that, oh, we talk about circumstantial evidence like 
oh, it's not as good as direct evidence. No, not at all. And, um, you know, all of this evidence that that led the police to get, you know, uh, a search, uh, the the arrest, arrest Koberger, get a search warrant. They, they got the uh, touch DNA. They did a buckle swab. You know, they got the DNA from the napkin in Pennsylvania that led to uh, realizing that the person who's um, uh, touched DNA evidence, the, that DNA belongs to somebody who's a male relative of the person whose DNA they got off of the, uh, of the um, napkin in Pennsylvania. All of that is strong circumstantial evidence that they, the cops got the right guy. Six weeks in a case like this, that's remarkably fast. And so um, I just hope people realize just to get information from an ME's office, like uh, what's uh, in somebody's blood, what's in somebody's stomach contents, the analysts of analyzing that, uh, a phone, a cell phone dump, that takes at least four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. So this was done very quickly. And very Absolutely. One piece of evidence that I don't hear anyone speaking about as much as I do, and it's something called eyewitness identification. And Dylan Mortensen, the downstairs roommate, witnesses the killer walk by her, and she describes him as having bushy eyebrows, tall, thin, athletic build, not muscular. If Dylan Mortensen can sit in, in the witness stand and testify and say, that looks like the guy who I saw walk by me that night. I mean, I guess it could be sort of, disqualified because Kohlberg has been all over the news, all over TV. But if from her recollection, she can actually say truthfully, that looks like the guy who walked by me. That's powerful evidence. And I don't care, you know, how many attorneys say, oh, what well, you're just making that up. You've seen him other times. I think that's very powerful evidence. If she here's here's how to get it in, Billy. Here's how to get it in. She gave a statement on the day that this took place. She describes a male. She probably uh, described height, weight, uh, uh, the bushy eyebrows. They'll get that in. And if it's objected to, they'll pull the police report. And they'll say, here's the interview. On this date, when this occurred, did you say blah, 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 that, uh, bushy eyebrows, uh, uh, tall, slender? All of those things will be brought out. Can she say 100% that Brian Kohlberger is the guy? Probably not. But she can give a description on the day that it happened. No, but Phil, I think it's more important that if she sat in the witness stand and she says that, the man sitting next to that attorney there, that looks like the guy I saw on the morning of November 13th. And of course, her statement has been taken by the police, but her oral testimony and pointing I'm sure that she's going to testify. I'm sure she's going to testify. Perhaps they could get what you just said into there that, you know, she believes that Brian Koberg is the same person, but then they're going to be, you know, the defense attorney is going to say, well, didn't you describe the person as having a mask and it was up to his nose and you can't identify it. You know, they'll go into that, but listen, there's a lot of powerful stuff here and you're right, Billy. The fact that she's going to testify that she saw a person enter the house, I'm sorry, exit the house, and they know the time frame based on his car and uh, from the video camera that was down the block, and they're, they're going to have the footprint and all the different things. So listen, th this is a complicated case, but there's a ton of circumstantial evidence, and I'm sure it's all going to be brought out. Absolutely. And folks, just so you know, it has been announced that um, 
the Koberger case, the Idaho quadruple murders of the, the four students, uh, is going to happen in the summer of 2024. So the, there's the students up on the screen, Zaina Canodal, Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, and Ethan Chapin. Here's, here's actually a better picture of them up on the screen. So the trial is going to happen this summer, according to district attorney requested uh, that it happens in the summer of 2024. Don't forget, it's a death penalty case. So the chances that this case, if there's a conviction, if it gets appealed, are about 100%. It'll get appealed. There's, there is no doubt. Just about every single uh, death penalty case does get appealed. Uh, Phil, you want to take? Uh... Sure. We miss Joe Murray. Wish he was on with us today. Joe Murray, attorney of law. Listen, guys, if you become involved in a situation where you need a criminal defense attorney and you're in the New York City area, there's none better than Joe Murray. Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD, <laughs> so he literally knows both sides of defense. If you need to get a hold of Joe, right there on the screen you have his website jmurray-law.com or you can reach him by telephone at 646-838-1702 or you can email joe at joe at jmurray-law.com joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff real crime stories and we feel he is a terrific criminal defense attorney very well done we're going to move on now to another huge case from 2023 and that's of course the infamous alec murdoch uh and there's been a lot of happenings with this case because um, the the murder, the double murder case that he was sentenced to uh, to life without without parole, uh, two consecutive sentences of life without the possibility of parole, they're now appealing it because of misconduct by a, a court employee who possibly tainted the jury. So it has not yet been decided that he's going to get a new trial, but his defense attorneys have already petitioned for a new trial. However, his financial crimes, he just got sentenced to 27 years for them. So that in essence could also be a life sentence in itself. Mike. Yeah, Billy, the, the future does not look too bright for Mr. Uh, Murdoch because even if he does uh, even if an appellate court agrees with the defense attorney's appeal that there was some misconduct that may have tainted the deliberations of the jury, uh, and that's a, a hell of a climb, you know, um, even if that happens, all he'll get is a mistrial. He's not going to be free on bond or anything like that. No, because he's already, and he's got this other conviction. So he's just going to sit in jail and maybe they'll have to do the, the uh, murder trials all over again. But as you say, he's got, you know, a 27 year conviction on the, the other felonies for stealing from just about every single human being he could possibly touch. Um, that's pretty much a life sentence for him as it is, because he's about in his late 60s, mid 60s, something like that. So, you know, he's looking at, uh, you know, a parole date of like, you know, when he's 99 years old. So I don't think anybody should worry about it. Um, but uh you know, the devil is in the details. So we have to actually see what the actual allegation is of impropriety on the court employee that may, may have, you know, an allegation is one thing. You actually have to prove it because if you're actually alleging that this, this conduct took place and tainted 
the jury, which tainted their deliberations, you have to have witnesses, you have to have people signing affidavits, you have to have people coming in and testifying. And um, that's a, it's a big hill to climb. But uh, I don't think anybody should be worrying about him uh, being out of, you know, you know, not wearing an orange jumpsuit anytime soon. He's going to be stay right where he is. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about a despicable human being. Not only was he convicted of killing his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, and got two consecutive life without parole sentences, but over he stole over $10 million from his clients over the last 10 years. And they think a lot of that money still exists. 10 there's million no accounting. Yeah, there's no way he blew that money on drugs. He, uh, he'd he be dead if he blew all that money on drugs. So they know that, and he won't, of course, he's not going to give that up uh, where that money is. But once a criminal, I guess always a criminal, and he has that criminal mind, you know. But, you know, the only thing is, Mike, in the second, if he does get a new trial for the murder, he'll never testify. Right. Never he won't make that mistake ever again. You don't make that mistake twice. <laughs> no, no, no he definitely will never testify. When we first started, Phil and I actually first started covering the Murdoch case. And when we first started, we couldn't believe it. We just could not believe that, you know, in this little small town, the Murdoch family ran basically ran justice there great grandfather was the district attorney there well, they four generations they were running yeah. this yeah, down there they call it the solicitor general i think and so they, they were stealing you know i don't want to point fingers at other members of the family but you think he was doing it by himself i don't know it, do, it doesn't sound likely. When, when you look at all the components of this case, I mean, this is a affluent, privileged family, four generations, well-known in the town. Uh, you, you take the components of uh, the drug addiction and the stealing of the money and, and Gloria Satterfield's death and Stephen Smith's death and the boating accident and all these different components. This was something that you couldn't make up if you were a, a script writer, you know? So I think that's why there was a lot of attention to this case. Uh, he horrifically killed his wife and his son. Uh, I, I don't think uh, there's anything worse that a, a human being can do to kill your loved ones like that. And it really had a lot of attention to the case. I think the, the pinpoint uh, evidence in that case was that uh, TikTok video or I think oh, it, was Snapchat, it was Snapchat. Yeah, Snapchat, Snapchat video that had him in the background. That was the cherry on the top of the cake uh, that uh, as well as his testimony, we know his testimony uh, really sunk him as well, but the cherry on the top of the cake was the, uh, that video of him in the background and him trying to claim that he wasn't there at the time when the murders took place. So uh, the walls closed in pretty quickly on him. I agree with Mike. There's a lot of uh, years that he's going to be behind bars. Uh, Mike, I think you said he was in the sixties. He's actually like 54 years old. Oh, okay. So even if he gets, 20, 30, 40 years, it, it's probably going to be a, a life sentence for somebody like him. And there could be other further charges coming. You know, we still have uh, an investigation in the Gloria Satterfield case. Perhaps there could be some conspiracy charges there. And the Stephen Smith case as well, which is still uh, being uh, uh, 
uh, investigated as a homicide case. So uh, he's not out of the woods. Let's see where the appeal goes. He's got a 27-year sentence, I think you said, Bill, on the uh, on the financial crimes. Uh, whether or not they'll retry him on the murders is uh, yet to be determined, and there could be further charges coming forward. The more they dig deep into this uh, background of Alex Murda, perhaps the more uh, criminal activity they will uncover. And again, like you said, Billy, where is all this money? Uh, that's another question and uh, something else that has to be determined. You know, as I look at this picture on the screen of uh, Alec Murdoch in his orange jumpsuit, I, I just think of that funny expression, would you buy a used car from this man? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't think so. So Alex Murdoch claimed for months that he had not been at the kennels on the night of the murders. But in a video taken on his son Paul's phone only minutes before the murders likely took place, Alex Murdoch's voice can be heard placing him at the kennel that night. So that was the, the Snapchat video. And we're, we're pointing this out because, again, digital evidence is incredible and strong, powerful, powerful evidence and comes to play in pretty much every single murder investigation. How, how about the statement he said, Billy, what a tangled web we weave. Isn't that, isn't that powerful coming out of his mouth during a testimony at a trial? So, uh, you know, he, he really, really put himself in the trick bag in the beginning. And then when he took the stand, I think uh, he really sealed his own fate. And that, that video really uh, was the cherry on the top of the cake. What a tangled web we weave when That's we choose it. to deceive. That's yep. uh, what he said. And uh, yep. Yep. I think Sigmund Freud would call that a Freudian slip, wouldn't he? <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. And or uh, consciousness of guilt. I don't like to give it another, another minute to say consciousness of guilt again. <laughs> So, guys, I, I think that's about our, our show for today. And we try, you know, we we obviously all three of these cases could have their own hour and a half, two hour show easily. But we tried to put them in and just do the highlights of them, of what was going on in 2023 and what's going on in 2024. And 2024 for Alec Murdoch is going to be state prison. And if he gets a, a new trial and that's another judge will decide whether he gets a new trial or not. He may not get a new trial. As well so, as Rex Human and Brian Kohlberg, all three of these people will more than likely remain in jail for uh, uh, the extended period of their lives. 100%. So uh, I'm going to throw, uh, first of all, I want to just say to all our fans and friends, everyone have a happy, safe new year this evening. Uh, enjoy it with your friends and your family. Try not to drink too much. It's always good to bring 2024 the next year in without a headache. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> I've, I've done it both ways. I've done it without a headache and I've done it with a headache. And it's much nicer to bring the new year in without a headache. Mike, your final thoughts. Uh, I just want to say, wish everyone a very, you know, healthy and happy new year for them and their families and their loved ones. And uh, I just hope they please continue watching Police Off the Cuff. Well, thank you, Phil. Your final thoughts. Final thoughts. I just want to say God bless the victims and the families of all of the people we talked about today. And I want to thank Billy for having me part of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. It's an honor and a pleasure. It keeps me connected. I love doing this stuff. 
let's get justice for all victims all throughout the world. Happy New Year to everybody, to all our subscribers and our fans. You've been with us for quite some time, a few years now. We continue in 2024. We're going to try to do the best we could do to give you guys great content. And we're thankful for you guys. And uh, Happy New Year to everybody. And like Billy said, if you're going to drink, don't drive. And try not to go overboard. It sucks to wake up on New Year's Day with a bad hangover. <laughs> That's for sure. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Good Stay night. safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.